Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Insider. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. This year marks the 50th anniversary of American successful landing on the moon, and to talk with us about this historical event is James Donovan, author of Shoot for the Moon, The Space Race, and The Extraordinary Voyage of Apollo 11. Hello, James. So glad you could join us. Hi, Mark. Great to be here. Let's set the stage. Um, In your book, you chronicle the space race between the Soviet Union and the United States, which culminated in America's successful landing on the moon, July 1969. Take us back to the events leading up to this. And I I imagine it might be with uh, the Soviet Sputnik in 1957, but I'll let you take it away from there. No, you got me started there. Well, um, I saw that as a natural beginning for the space race, and I don't think there'd be much uh, argument about that. You know, we were kind of, uh, what's that, like 12 years after World War II, the United States, we just thought we were the best thing in, you know, in the world. And of course, we thought we were technologically superior to anyone. And all of a sudden, the Russian uh, satellite called Sputnik goes up, is put up by the Russians on October 4th, 1957, those step-riding, vodka-swilling Cossacks. And we were shocked and it created an absolute consternation and frenzy because the public started to worry about what was next, dropping oh, nuclear bombs from a larger satellite or from a space station or even the moon. Now, remember, this was you know, the middle of the, the Cold War, and a lot of people today don't understand how serious the stakes were back then. It was pretty much you know, free world versus you know, totalitarian communism, so it was very serious. Fortunately... Everybody in Congress, both sides of the aisle, agreed that we needed to do something. And they funded NASA and got that going the next year. And as you probably know, space exploration is extremely expensive, especially when a human is involved, because, of course, space is such a hostile environment. And all the things we've got to do to make sure uh, a human can survive up there is very, very expensive. So it took a lot of money in the mid-60s. In the middle of the Apollo program, I think NASA commanded almost 5% of the national budget, which is just unbelievable. Right now, it's about uh, uh, half a percent. Wow. Where was the United States in 1957 in their progress to get into space? You know, know, what was our intelligence like then, and how badly were, were the Americans caught off guard? Well, we had a satellite program. Uh, at the end of uh, World War II, over in Europe, we had used, there was a little-known operation called either Project or Operation Paperclip, where the United States scooped up as many of the best German scientists and engineers over there at the end of the war and dragged them over here uh, kind of surreptitiously. Uh, We got there just before the Russians and um, got the ones we wanted. Werner von Braun's crew of about 127, 128 scientists and engineers who were involved with the V-2 program, the first actual ballistic guided missiles that were active in the last couple years of the uh, the war. So he had been with his crew um, over at, staying at Fort Bliss and experimenting with uh, lots of V-2 parts and showing the army and, and we Americans how to build a real ballistic guided missile. So about 1957, he was involved with the Army in building uh, a Jupiter rocket that would have 
gotten a satellite up in space, but a, uh, a committee that the president organized decided that it wasn't going to be, uh, they wanted this to be less military, and they weren't sure that it was a good idea for the man heading uh, the group that was responsible for the first satellite. They didn't know that it, they didn't think it would be a good idea if it was a, a former Nazi, because he was a part of the Nazi party. Even though he became actually a very good American in 1950, he became an American citizen. So they decided that the Navy at that point, who, which had a competing program, their satellite would be the first. Well, uh, they were almost ready to get up when the Russian uh, satellite got went up in uh, October. And a couple months later, they tried the Navy's Vanguard. And it was what they called in the papers a flopnik, kaputnik because it got about a foot or two off the launch pad and exploded and the top popped off and fell down and just kept on beeping. So it was a big joke. Well, about a month later, uh, Von Braun's Explorer uh, satellite did successfully reach orbit. So jumping ahead a few years to uh, the election of uh, John F. Kennedy, what did he have in this uh, game? How did he propel the U.S. space missions? Well, you know, ironically, he's become identified with uh, Apollo and because, of course, that May 1961 challenge before both houses of Congress to send a man to the moon and bring them back safely before the end of the decade. Uh, but ironically, before that happened, before he became president, he really didn't care much about space. Now, Lyndon B. Johnson, his running mate, vice president, had been since the late 40s, and he was one of the prime motivators in organizing the funding and the vote to, uh, you know, start a manned space program after, after Sputnik in 1957 and 58. But Kennedy warmed up to it once he started visiting uh, the sites, uh, NASA's sites, and seeing the rockets and meeting some of the astronauts. So the reason for the speech he gave was that we were being trounced by the Soviets Every few weeks, every few months, they'd send up uh, about a month after the first Sputnik, which was just a beach ball sized little round polished satellite that just circled the earth and went beep, beep, beep. About a month later, they sent up a much, much larger one uh, with a dog in it. And then it was clear that they were headed towards manned space exploration. Else, why would you send a dog? So it was clear that something had to be done to prove our superiority to the Russians. And Kennedy asked all his advisors, and he said, I'll do anything. What can we do to show that we are technologically superior? What great feat of engineering and technology? And the thing that his, his advisors came back with was landing a man on the moon in the next few years. At some point, that would put us on even ground with the Soviets at that point because they don't have any more technology, advanced technology for a large enough rocket booster to do that than we do. So uh, we could probably win that race, which is why he uh, threw down that challenge in May 1961. And then it took six years for the first Apollo 1 mission, 1967. Right. Well, I mean, you know, we were building this from the ground up. Uh, they were, they farmed out many, many parts of this whole program 
to thousands of contractors and subcontractors. At one point, uh, at its busiest, 400,000 people around the country were involved in uh, the manned spaceflight program, mostly Apollo. And of course, they were learning this as they went along. When they, when they enthusiastically, NASA, I mean, enthusiastically adopted, uh, embraced Kennedy's challenge, they didn't know exactly what mode that they would use to get a man to the moon and back. So they were still wrestling with that. They were still figuring out how to do all this, uh, all the engineering. I mean, what was needed? They were just making it up as they went along, in a sense. But they wanted to do it, of course, with the greatest safety. So now let's jump to 1969, 10 missions later, we're at Apollo 11, and I, I, I want to turn to the, I, I guess, the hero of the book, Neil Armstrong. Tell us a little bit about how he got to this place and what was going on. Armstrong, uh, he was the commander of Apollo 11, of course, and Buzz Aldrin was his lunar module pilot. Mike Collins was the third crewman. He was the command module pilot. And, and of course, they were all fantastically intelligent and with an engineering background. Because from the very beginning, from the Mercury 7 astronauts to the other groups of astronauts that were picked, Gemini and Apollo, they were all expected to have an engineering background so they could be involved as much as possible in the design and engineering of, uh, of the various spacecraft. Armstrong was a very, very intelligent man, very modest, unassuming, you know, all these. And he was a test pilot. He had been a test pilot and a very good one. Uh, he had been picked to fly the X-15, which not many men were picked. That was the most experimental airplane. It still holds, you know, the records for speed and altitude for an actual airplane. Um, he was picked. He had uh, commanded a Gemini mission, Gemini 8 which almost ended in tragedy, but thanks to his coolness and quick thinking, they got out of that nasty problem. And he was picked for Apollo 11, which would be the first chance, the first attempt to man land a man or men on the moon. Uh, a lot of the astronauts I talked to said they didn't think Apollo would actually be the first to land. It was the first to schedule to try, but they thought some problems would come up because they were still learning. And no one had ever landed this lunar module, which, by the way, was the first true spaceship, spacecraft, because it was only built to work, fly in uh, the airless vacuum of space. It was, it, was, it was not strong enough to even move or work in uh, an actual atmosphere on the Earth. So he was, part of it was just it was his turn, and he had seniority, and he was picked for 11, but it's not as simple as that. I have to think that his modesty and coolness under pressure had something to do with it. Right. Could you tell us a little bit more about the, his mission right uh, as he was landing? Yeah. Well, you know, they got up to the moon in three days, got, got a good night's sleep. Not night is kind of a relative term, of course. The next day... Uh, they crawled, he and Buzz Aldrin, crawled through the small tunnel separating, uh, well, uniting the lunar module from the control, uh, I mean the command module. And it wasn't very large. They stood there in their spacesuits. There were no seats. They stood there because there was, of course, no 
it was weightless in space and down on the moon it was only one six gravity so they hardly needed seats and they took them out for for weight and separated from the command module and when they were given the okay the go they started powering down they were still orbiting the moon started uh, descending towards the surface from 50,000 feet up about 10 miles they only had fuel for about 12 minutes this had been planned out to the the second of course but there's plans and then there's plans what's that old saying the best laid plans of mice and men when they separated for the command module they depressurized the tunnel between the two but they didn't depressurize it completely so there was a small amount of air still in there so when they separated it was like think of a champagne and a cork it gave it a little there was a pop there and it, it got them going gave them a little impetus and by the time they got down close to the surface they had moved past the selected landing spot on the moon maps that Armstrong and Aldrin had spent hours memorizing and of course that's about when computer alarms started going off that only one man in NASA knew the meaning of a 24 year old computer whiz in a back support room those alarms took the astronauts' attention from the surface. By the time they got those sorted out, they were kind of lost. Of course, fuel and time was running out, and their computer, you know, that, that, uh, that great computer with about 72 kilobytes of memory and one megahertz of processing speed, if you can believe that, was about to land them on the moon. It, it could do that using velocity, altitude, uh, things like that, but it didn't know what it was landing them exactly where on the surface. It was about to land them on the side of a crater with large boulders around it. So that's when Armstrong took over manual control and was looking for a level, clear place to land. There was a, a flight controller in mission control at the time with a stopwatch, and he was counting down the seconds of approximate fuel because they didn't know exactly how much fuel. Believe it or not, it was just like a car. There's a slosh factor involved. Right, which we've all experienced. Yeah, exactly. But never but, on the moon. Yeah, right. But they knew approximately, and he, he was going 30, 29, 28, and everybody else was being quiet because Armstrong needed all his attention to figure out where he was going to land. And he got to 50, he said 15, and Armstrong and Aldrin dropped it down. Aldrin said, contact light and they dropped it down safely, so just under 15 seconds, roughly speaking. Amazing. And what was Buzz Aldrin's uh, role? We've talked a little bit about Neil Armstrong, just briefly about Buzz Aldrin. I should say my, my son goes to the middle school where Buzz Aldrin went and was recently renamed Buzz Aldrin Middle School in New Jersey. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Buzz Aldrin. You're kidding. Oh, that's kind no, of interesting. No, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, Aldrin was probably the most brilliant uh, scientific mind of those, you know, early astronauts. His uh, thesis for his master's degree at MIT was line of sight guidance techniques for manned orbital rendezvous. I've looked at it. I can't say I read it. I know it's in English. <laughs> he was very brilliant, and NASA, the NASA scientists and engineers actually used some of his thesis in um, their work. But he was never that well liked by most of the other Apollo astronauts. He kind of was missing that small talk camaraderie thing, you know, that pe most people have. But they did respect him. He definitely marched to the sound of his own drummer, though. But he 
he wasn't happy, of course, and we know this. It's 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 not a secret that he that Armstrong was going to be the first was selected to be the first man to walk on the moon. He tried to lobby other astronauts and his NASA bosses to change that. That that stopped. But his job. Now here's another funny thing. They decided early on in 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 NASA that no pilot, none of these alpha male top pilots was ever going to be called a co-pilot. So he was the lunar module pilot. And I could never figure this out before I started studying this and researching this. He's the lunar module pilot, but he never piloted the lunar module. And this went for all six other, uh, I mean, five other uh, missions that landed on the moon. It was always the commander that was that piloted it. Anyway, that was his title. But what he actually acted as was was a co-pilot. You could say that's some duties of a co-pilot, navigator, systems engineer, and he was superb at that. Uh, during the landing, he was giving um, Armstrong uh, altitude readings, velocity readings, forward, down. So Armstrong didn't have to look at the instruments and know that he could just look out the window at the surface to where a safe landing was. Amazing. So I, I want to pull back just a little bit. You live in Texas. You, your previous books were on the Alamo, uh, the title The Blood of Heroes, and on General Custer, Terrible Glory. Now, you know, your previous two subjects didn't end so well for your subjects. What drew you to this other than perhaps uh, Neil Armstrong's last name is General Custer's first name? Isn't that funny? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I did those two. They were 19th century subjects. I enjoyed them very much uh, researching because I love researching. That's my favorite part of the uh, process. Writing is agony, Those taking those words, you know. But um, a few reasons I wanted to do this. Number one, you know, an editor in New York suggested this, and I put it away, and I thought, eh, yeah, maybe. But, you know, there's got to be a lot out there. And I put it away, but I kept on thinking about it because when I was a kid, I read lots of SF, science fiction and fantasy and I mean, I read so much science fiction. That's all I read for until I was, uh, you know, a couple years into high school. So these guys, those astronauts, were my heroes. So, you know, I eventually realized I couldn't say no to this. I had to do it. But another couple of reasons, you know, most people living today weren't alive or old enough to remember the first moon landing. You know, the median age in this country is something like 38. And, you know, this is 50 years ago. And, of course, you'd have to be old enough to remember living through it. That's got to be another five or six years. So, you know, vast majority of people in this country don't remember it or know about it very much. And an alarmingly large number of them, this is really scary, don't even believe it actually happened. So I thought a lively and accurate account of it was sorely needed to counter that trend. So let's take us now to, to the present. Uh, it's 50 years out. You're an historian. Um, you just mentioned that many people didn't believe in this. Here we are 50 years later living in an era where people are claiming fake news. There was fake news then. People didn't believe this. And Russia, which was then obviously the Soviet Union, is, is ever-present in our lives now. Are there any parallels you could draw or anything you glean from these 50 years? between then and now you know it's just boy it's bloated with parallels it you know we're kind of at after decades of um glasnost and, and a truce obviously I, it seems like we're kind of edging towards another cold war cold war two or something um so i am worried about that there is that parallel um 
but you know, it's, it's one of the astronauts that landed on the moon. As a matter of fact, the last man to land on the moon, Gene Cernan, who just died a few months ago, he said a very wonderful thing. He said, sometimes it seems that Apollo came before its time. President Kennedy reached far into the 21st century, grabbed a decade of time and, and slipped it neatly into the 1960s and 70s. And it appeared that way because once we did it, you know, the space race appeared one and, you know, the public didn't really much care. Those next five uh, missions, they complained when uh, they interrupted their, you know, TV, favorite TV shows. So there wasn't much interest in them, even though they what they found on the moon, some of those more scientific missions uh, is, is some fascinating stuff. But I see today more interest and you know we're talking almost 50 years later more interest in space in almost every area of our lives uh, film tv books and let's be honest the commercial sector you know spacex virgin galactic blue origin there's so much more interest in space so i'm hoping you know this book can at least give us an idea of uh, those first baby steps because i do think this is going another step, and I don't know if we want to talk about this now, but I, I do think we've we've got to leave the Earth at some point. Yes, and uh, I was this one other thing I was going to mention is talk about living on Mars. <laughs> Boy, talk about a forbidding place. Right. You know, right now, NASA has rough plans to do it in 2032, something like that. Um, but, you know, NASA always has grandiose plans. It's all a matter of, of funding because, as I mentioned before, putting humans in space is just obscenely expensive. And getting them somewhere that's going to take about nine months to get to using uh, home and transfer orbit and things like that. And then they'd have to stay there for about 500 days and then come back another nine month trip. That think about that. All the comestibles, food, oxygen, water, fuel for all this, and housing. I mean, it, it, it's just a huge undertaking. I mean, I hope it happens soon, but I don't know that it's going to happen before the 20, 2030s. Right now, they're they're also um, trying to come up with other different kinds of drives to get us there faster, like plasma drive and ion drive. Uh, even a nuclear fuel drive. But, you know, none of those things are sure things right now. Right now, we're still stuck with chemical drives. We've been talking about past and future space travel with James Donovan, the author of Shoot for the Moon, The Space Race, and The Extraordinary Voyage of Apollo 11. James, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. This was a blast. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to PW Insider on iTunes, and we will see you next week. 